Good morning, everybody. Um, a little more enthusiasm. You guys are like the caffeinated crowd. I was hoping for a little bit more. Um, before we get started, um, I just want to turn you guys' attention to our play sheet. So as you guys came in this morning, you should have gotten a copy of this. If not, grab one on the way out. What we're trying to do is just give you a one-pager on all the highlights of the major things happening here in and through the church And so the first thing I would love to turn your attention to is the fact that we have a thing called Alpha that happens on Thursday nights. And if you're new to the faith, or if somebody drug you here to church this morning, you're like, why am I here? Or you completely disagree with everything that we believe and want a place to voice those opinions and wrestle through that. We host an event on Thursday nights where we provide dinner, we watch a video that presents the Christian worldview, and then you have a chance to interact and wrestle through those doubts. And so may I personally invite you to come and be a part of that. We'd love to have you guys there. Now, if you've been coming to Rio for a little bit and you're like, okay, I'm in, church is my thing, this is my church, we host a thing called Starting Point once a month. Um, We had hosted it between these services this morning, but the next time, if you want to come learn more about life at Rio, um, it'll be June 30th. And then if you're like in, I'm a member or not, and I just want to grow deeper in my faith, we've started a new thing called spiritual formation. And so Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8, um, Sam is going to be teaching a series of amazing classes. So if you want to grow deeper in your faith, come here, be a part of it. It's going to be a great night. And then the other two things I have for you on this play sheet, one of them is Summer Serve. So our Rio Families does this great thing where they have volunteers commit for a semester or for the year, for nine months, to come and teach our kids the Word of God. But in order to give them, keep them fresh, we try to give them the summer off. And so Rio Families is just looking for volunteers just for the summer. Um, it's just June 3rd through August 28th. So if you could commit to doing that, we'd love to have you. You can go meet with somebody in the back um, and talk to them about that. And then the last thing I want to turn your attention to before we get started um, is on that back wall, I can't see how many are left, but we have a thing called the DR wall. We have 100 envelopes on that wall. And what we're trying to do is fully fund four to five of our students to go to Haiti. And so in years past, we've had more influx of of income or kids that come from church families. But this year, we are excited that we're sending more kids who don't come from a faith background. And so we are trying to get them fully funded to go. And if you do the math, if every one of those envelopes is gone by the end of this service, we will raise over $5,000 to help send these kids to the Dominican Republic. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. There's some, I'm assuming someone took the one and $2, but like, I think someone took the 100 but anything in between, anything would help send these students to Haiti, and they would love your support and encouragement to do that. Um, but with that in mind, um, I should probably introduce myself. Uh, my name is Scott Carson, and I'm the Director of Renewal here at Rio. Um, and if you're like most people, you're probably wondering, what is a Director of Renewal? Um, I thought I took it upon myself to go to LinkedIn to see if that would actually give me or you any help. Um, turns out, um, the word renewal is in a lot of titles of a lot of jobs, but I don't think anybody is a Director of Renewal. So the good news for me is that I'm at the top of my field. Bad news is I'm also at the bottom. Um, But in all seriousness, I have the privilege of overseeing the work we do here to bring about renewal in our city, whether that's with our city partners or whether that's with other churches in our community who have a shared vision of bringing about renewal to the city. Um, And the heart of this is that we want to be able to show the, the people the truth of the gospel through the common good that we all need to experience in this community. The monks 
And the Middle Ages set a great example for us because what they did was they established academies and universities and hospitals. They transformed the local economy and they cared for the weak through these institutions they made. But it was because they let the gospel change how they did their work. And that's what we want to see happen through renewal. And so like the monks of old, you might have heard that we have this thing called the Rio House. I know several of you guys were here when that got started, where we had to gut the place, put in new windows, paint, you name it. You guys were a part of getting that started. Well, if you weren't, um, we're excited that you're learning about this. Um, But the Rio House is a quadplex for homeless moms. And the whole idea is that they move in. We have a, a family support team here from Rio who lovingly prays for them who is family to that person. And then they have professional case management to help them break through the cycle of poverty. And over the last six or seven months, we've actually had two moms graduate from that program. The first one moved in making $7 an hour, working at a department store that has now gone bankrupt. And she used her time to get a degree as a dental hygienist. And now she's making $18 an hour and her and her family have broken that cycle and living on their own. The other one that you guys have been a part of helping is another lady who ended up getting her CAM license, which I know it stands for Community Association Manager, but while I don't know exactly what she does, I know that in getting that license, she was immediately hired by a company and within weeks had come to us to say, I'm in a place now financially that I want to move out into my own apartment because this place has meant so much for me, I don't want to take up a spot where another mom could use it. And so these are just examples of ways our church is bringing renewal to our community. Um, Another one, you know, I mentioned the DR wall earlier, but we have a partnership with an organization called Mission of Hope. And sometimes we go a lot, and right now we can't go as often because there's a little bit of political unrest. And so out of an abundance of caution, we're not sending teams to Haiti, but we're sending them to the Dominican Republic through that partnership. But behind the scenes, in the middle of this, we have a group of people in our church who are taking their business acumen, they're taking their years of experience, and what they're doing is they're creating a call center in Haiti. And the goal is that we'd be able to provide professional life coaching and mentoring, that we'd be able to create a job market where right now, if you're skilled labor, if you're a translator that goes on a trip with us, they make $8 a day, and that's skilled labor. And so we want to be able to transform that local economy and see that rising tide lift all those boats in that community and bring about renewal to every man, woman, and child in Haiti. And these are just a couple of the examples um, of renewal that's happening because of this church and through our partnerships. And just a small glimpse when I joke about what does a, a director of renewal do, these are just a few examples of things I get to be a part of that you guys are doing in and through this church. Now, this morning, um, I have the privilege of leading us through Luke 18, and we're going to continue our series entitled, What He Gave Us. In the first week, Winston um, just beautifully challenged us um, in the fact that God gave us purpose. He challenged us by reminding us of the Great Commission that says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Winston challenged us and gave us purpose, and our purpose is to make disciples. To share with people, spiritual renewal comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But we can't do it alone. And so he gave us his presence, telling us that he's going to be with us to the very end of the age. And then last week, Tom talked about how the fact that not only have we been given purpose, we've been given his presence, 
But God has given us power, and he's uniquely gifted each and every one of us as a body of Christ with spirit-given, spirit-driven gifts. And then he went on to tell us what renewal looked like when we used the gifts God gave us. He said that renewal happens when the church has eyes to see the plight of the orphan, and he won't let the rest of the body ignore it. The church has ears that hear the cry of the unborn and will not let them go unheard. The church has mouths that speak um, the truth about the living Christ and about grace and hope and healing that we have in Christ. The church has hands that are willing to work with the homeless and the diseased and dying. And the church has feet that are willing to take a stand for the oppressed. And they take the message of Jesus wherever the Spirit leads them to go. And so God has given us purpose and presence and power. And today we're going to be looking at prayer. And I think as we begin to look at all these things, God has given us purpose. But And then with all these other things we've been talking about, we're talking about how he has empowered and enabled us to make and fulfill the purpose he gave us. So today is going to be the first part of a two-part series in which we talk about prayer. Um, And today my focus is going to be on why do we pray as we look at Luke 18. Know that we pray for a lot of reasons and there's a lot of things we could have talked about. And so this is not an exhaustive list on prayer. Um, Know that while I focus on why, Tom is going to be focusing on how we pray and the connection that we have with the Lord next week. Um, But with that in mind, um, turn with me or look with with me at Luke 18. Um, And as you're doing that, I just want to take a moment and define prayer. I think if I'm going to tell you why we pray, I should also tell you what prayer is. Um, And for our purposes today, um, I think prayer is just very simply personal communication with God. It's talking, it's listening, that when we pray, we're expressing our trust in God and not ourselves. That when we pray, when we communicate with God, we show that we are thoroughly convinced of God's wisdom and love and goodness and His power. And when we pray, all that we think or feel about God is expressed in prayer. We take all those things we think and feel, and we're able to communicate those things back to God as we do that. And so prayer is communicating with God. It's talking and listening and expressing our trust and our hope in His goodness. So as we dive into Luke 18, um, I heard someone say this earlier this week. I was not a journalism major, um, but I was told you don't bury the lead. So I'm just going to tell you up front what I would like all of us to walk away with today. And that's three things. When we leave here today, I want you guys to know that we pray because God delights in prayer. I want us to walk away knowing that we pray because we can. And what a privilege it is that we can pray. And lastly, we pray because we're His. And so turn with me to Luke 18, starting in verse 1, as we learn about why God delights in our prayer. So starting in verse 1, Luke says this, or Jesus actually. And Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I like when Jesus is direct. Like he makes it very clear, I'm going to tell you and teach you to pray and not lose heart. And so that's what he's done. This is what we're supposed to learn. Pray and not lose heart. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So we have a judge who's blind to justice, who's focused only on personal gain. He has no regard for human beings. You know, and there's certainly no standards of justice if this guy is sitting on the bench. And then in verse 3, we're introduced to the widow. It says, And there was a widow. And I found it interesting as I was preparing for this morning that widows weren't what I think of them today. They're not 60-year-olds or 70-year-olds or 80-year-olds. Oftentimes in this community, in this culture, it was late 20s and early 30s that someone would become a widow. Life was hard. And so one of the things that would happen, though, if you became a widow at this season of life is that you had two choices. 
Because there was no family estate to inherit as a widow, and there was no life insurance check to collect. Um, You had two things that you could do. You could stay with your spouse's family, knowing that the position you're now in is one of servitude. And so in my mind's eye, I imagine that being like Cinderella, after her dad died and before she became a princess. She lived that life of servitude. And that was one option for the widow. And the second option that she would have is that she could go back to her personal family. But if she chose to go back to her family, they would have to pay back the dowry in which they paid for her, that they received when she got married. And so neither is a great option, especially if the the family had already spent that money. And so we have an unjust judge and we have a defenseless widow that we're looking at today. And there was a defenseless widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. And she's not talking about getting a parking ticket overturned. She's not arguing with a a cop about whether or not she was speeding through the tunnel, which I think all of us actually do. Um, But literally her life was on the line and she was fighting to be vindicated. And so she persistently came to the judge each and every day for justice. And so verse four, for for a while, the judge refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God or respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she won't beat me down. So his decision um, to give her justice is not that he had some form of moral reform or that his heart was changed. This man was practical. He said to himself, if I give her justice, she won't nag me to death. I can literally stop the process and the pain right now. Give her justice and she'll leave me alone. And that's what he did. And so the Lord said this to us, starting in verse 6. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So as I mentioned, the opening line of this parable tells us the point. We're to pray and not lose heart. But I think we need to answer the question, well, why? What is this parable teaching us about why we should pray and not lose heart? And I think it's found in verse 7 where he says, And will not God give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? This parable honestly is less about the widow and her injustice or her injustice that she's trying to get corrected. I think it's actually more about comparing an unjust judge and the God of the Bible. That if an unjust judge is willing to give justice, even if it's just out of practical Wisdom that says, I do not want to be annoyed. How much more so will the God of the Bible who loves us, who is perfect, who is the God of justice, give us justice to those who are in relationship with him? And so it's this comparison between the two. So why do we pray and not lose heart? It's not because we're called to nag God to the point of annoyance that eventually gets tired of hearing from us so that we'll leave him, we'll leave him alone. In fact, it's the opposite. We pray and we don't lose heart because we're our, we are expressing our trust in God. Prayer shows that we're genuinely, con- genuinely convinced of God's wisdom. We're genuinely convinced of His love and goodness and power. We don't lose heart because we know that our trust is in a God who is love, who is that ultimate standard of goodness, and that He has the power alone to answer our prayers. And so our prayer is faith expressed to God. And so we don't lose heart because we know he hears our prayers. And we know he delights in hearing us express our trust in him. I think the fancy church word is just praise. That when we sing songs on Sunday morning, we are singing back to God the characteristics of his goodness to him. And that's what we're talking about. He delights in hearing those things. 
And earlier this week, um, my three-year-old and I were making blueberry pancakes. And so I'm standing at the counter. He had got like a little chair to stand up next to me. Then out of nowhere, like unprompted, I'm not like poking and prodding for him to say nice things. He just turns and looks at me and says, you're a good daddy. And it was heart melting. You know, like that kid, whatever, whatever you want. You want chocolate chips now? We'll put those in there too. Like, you know, whatever he wants. But if it means that much to me to hear that from my child, how much more so God when we pray to him and we express our love and our hope and our trust to him. And so the God who loves us perfectly hears our prayers and he delights in hearing them. And so while the first parable is teaching us that God delights in our prayer, as we turn to look at Luke um, 18, starting in verse 19, we're going to learn to pray because we can. And so starting in verse 9, it says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So Jesus, just so you know, the context with the first one is he was talking to his disciples. And so now Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees, and he's just being very direct in saying that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so in the second parable, we see this comparison between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, at that time, Pharisees were the most righteous, most holy. They were the ones that adhered to God's law to the T. They dotted their I's, they crossed their T's. There were 613 laws that they obeyed. It's not just the Ten Commandments. You're like, oh, there's ten. It doesn't feel hard. There's 613 of them. And they would scrupulously try to adhere to each and every one of them. Of those, 248 of them were positive commandments, like honor your father and mother, or other things that they were to do. The other 365 were negative commandments, or the things I think we most often think about when it comes to the Bible, or things that we don't do. Like, you shall not murder. And so... These Pharisees that we're having this comparison with were, on the outside, perfect. They obeyed 613 laws. I think of them as the annoying kid in class who was not only getting an A, but they argued with the professor about the finer points of the answer. They were also the ones, I think, that did the extra credit, even though they were already getting an A. Um, But I also think they're the ones that if they were standing here today, they would say, well, technically... Well, technically, nobody asked them. So I find them as the annoying kid, honestly. But then we have the tax collector, I think, who's a little bit easier to identify with. Um, But he's on the opposite end of the spectrum because tax collectors at that time would bid for and purchase the right to tax you. So a tax collector would bid for the right to tax all of Fort Lauderdale or they would bid for the right to tax the Rio Vista neighborhood and anything that they made above and beyond what they owed to Rome, they kept in their pocket. And so... If it was a flat tax of $100 a person, they would charge 125 and they'd pocket the 25 And there was no end to the upper limit of what they could take from you. And in my mind's eye, I see the tax collector very much like those people that are in the mafia, where they come to your neighborhood, say that it's their territory. Then they say that you owe them money for protection. 
but you're just paying to protect yourself from them. That's the tax collector in this example. So you have the A student being compared to the mafia thug. And so this, and we're both the A student and the mafia thug have gone to the temple to pray. When the A student stands in the spot that they're probably most likely to be seen by the most amount of people, they are loudly listing off all of these great accomplishments with which they've done. They probably have their report card with straight A's in their back pocket. I'm sure if they had a backpack on, their bumper sticker said that they're an honor roll student at who knows what school. Um, But what they're doing um, is they're standing in front of everybody saying, I'm so glad I'm not like the rest of you. The rest of you are below me and are inferior. All the while, that mafia thug is standing off in the distance. He'd probably be off in the corner over there somewhere. And he's got his head down. And he just simply beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so two men went up to the temple to pray that day, but only one of them really prayed. The Pharisee mentions God, but does not pray to God. He just rests his case on a catalog of virtues, all these great things he has done. He rehearses before God his service, how he's kept each and every one of those 613 laws, how he's fasted twice a week. Mind you, for him, he only actually had to fast one time a year. So he has gone above and beyond the call of duty to prove how righteous he was. And yet on the other hand, we have a tax collector who has real sins and his virtues are non-existent. The tax collector knows his situation to be much different because without a catalog of virtues to rehearse in front of God and say, look how great I am, don't you owe me something? He, on the other stand, stands humbly and stares at the ground. And I, I see him like the little kid that just got in trouble and they know they're in trouble, just kind of looking down. And he just stands in front of God praying and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So how is it that Jesus can say, the guy that on the outside looks perfect and he's doing everything you could have imagined right. And yet on the other hand, the tax collector is pretty much robbing each and every one of us blind. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Well, it's because the tax collector's trust was not in his own catalog of virtues, but his hope and his trust was in the mercy of God. I think what's interesting when I start comparing the first parable to the second one, is in that first parable, we have a judge, an unjust judge at that, who uses his authority to give justice to a woman so that she will leave him alone. And in the second one, we see a judge who uses his authority to make a way for us to come to him. That Jesus, the only true righteous judge, got off that judgment seat and became a man and endured our injustice and our sentencing so that we could come to him. The unjust judge in the first parable of him and the widow just gives justice so the woman leaves. But God takes on our judgment to make a way for us to come to Him, to be in relationship with Him. We're justified not by our catalog of virtues like the Pharisee, but we're justified by the righteousness of Christ like the tax collector. So when we come back to the question of why do I pray? We pray because we can. Jesus has made a way for us when there was no other way. In the Old Testament, it was actually unthinkable that you could be in God's presence. Because if you saw God, you would not live and so one time a year for the Day of Atonement, a priest, one priest, one time a year would get to go into the presence of God. And before he did that, he would have to be ceremonially ceremonially clean. It's a hard one to say for me. He'd have to bathe himself, put on special clothes. He would have to make a sacrifice. 
And then on the way out, he'd have to take another bath, put on a different set of clothes, and then make more sacrifices just so that one person, one time a year, could go before the presence of the Lord. And on top of that, it wasn't guaranteed he would do a good job. And so as a safety net, they would tie a rope around the man's waist because if he did go into the presence of the Lord and did something wrong, he would fall down dead. And so they would have the ability to pull his body out. But we pray because we can. We can enter into the presence of our Lord anytime, anywhere we want. No washing, no special clothes, and thankfully no rope around our waist. But it's because the ultimate sacrifice was made on our behalf. That when Christ died on the cross and he rose from the grave, he, and he ascended at the right hand of the Father, he paid that ultimate sacrifice on our behalf to be in God's presence. I think Tim Keller has a great quote where he simply says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. You and I have that kind of access to God. We are like children that we can come before God. It reminds me actually of a series of photos of when JFK was in office. Um, You'd see him meeting with foreign dignitaries, heads of state, leaders of the known free world, and his son was literally just playing hide-and-seek underneath the resolute desk. And it seems like he was just hanging out with his dad. And I think if I wanted to go see the president, I would, one, not be able to play hide-and-seek in the office. Um, But two, I couldn't tell you the process by which I would need to even make an appointment. By the time I picked up the phone and I called the White House operator, I'm sure I would have been on hold for a while. Then I'd get transferred probably to the wrong secretary. And then when I talked to her, she would tell me that I got transferred to the wrong place. I'd wait on hold and I'd get sent someplace else. And I'm assuming by the end of two hours, by the, fi- by the time I get to the right person to talk to, I'm going to find out I have no chance. I have no chance of meeting with him. I could not get two minutes of FaceTime with any president if I wanted to. Yet God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke the world into existence, who gave us our very next breath, has made a way for us to be in his presence anytime, anywhere. And like the tax collector, we have no merit or worth to be standing in the presence of the king, yet we can because of Christ's sacrifice. Which leads me to my last and final point. We pray because God delights in prayer. We pray because we can. And lastly, we pray because we're his. Like the tax collector, those who are Christ's followers we have been justified. God has forgiven. I mean, justified is a fancy church word for saying we have been forgiven. That Christ forgave our sins and his righteousness is now our own. And in that, you and I become children of God. Galatians 3.26 just says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 6.18 says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons, you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. For John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Tim Keller also said, A triune God would call us to converse with him. Why? Why does he call us to talk with him? Because he wants to share the joy he has. And prayer is our way of entering into the joy of his happiness. And so our Heavenly Father took upon himself our judgment in order that we could be made right in a relationship with him. And that relationship is not with him being like a landlord where he's just coming to collect a rent check once a month. It's not as a boss who's micromanaging us and watching the day-to-day things that we do. And he's not coming to us as an unjust judge just looking for ways to penalize us for whatever mistakes we've made. But God is our Heavenly Father 
who I know that when we say father, there's a lot of people who have had different experiences with that concept or with a person called dad. But God of the Bible has the best of intentions, who loves you perfectly, and is genuinely the father we've all been dreaming of having. And so this God has adopted you and he's adopted me as sons and daughters and through prayer has invited us into his happiness. Therefore, we pray because we can. We are his sons and daughters, and he delights in hearing our prayers. And he's invited us into his happiness because we're his. And so with those things in mind, I want to just leave us with two questions before Matt comes up for a time of reflection. First question um, for us today is, what is one area in our life that we need to be reminded of God's character as we pray? What's one area in our life that we need to be reminded of God's character when we pray, knowing that we can continue to persist in prayer? And the second question um, is, why, who or what are you trusting in in terms of a relationship with God? Is it your catalog of virtues or what Christ did on your behalf on the cross? So what's that one area that you need to be reminded of God's character? Or who or what are you trusting in in terms of a relationship with God? Your catalog of virtues or what Christ did on your behalf on the cross. So with that, I'm going to invite Matt up to lead us in a time of reflection.